0: Good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2. If you're new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. We're glad you are here. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, know that you are always welcome. Uh, You should know that we've been making our way through a series on Genesis 1 through 3. Here at Free Money Free, we like to take books of the Bible, or in this case, portions of books of the Bible, preach through them verse by verse. The reason we do that is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. So that means that right now we are in Genesis chapter 2. Our hope in this series is is, is that we're able to understand better how God has made the world And that we can start to view the the world through the lens of His creation and through the lens of the way He has made us. So Genesis chapter 2 is where we are this morning. I know Jim just prayed, but let me pray again and ask God for help during this time. Uh, Lord, we do want to pause here and ask for your help because we know we need it. We know that there are a lot of things that distract us on a daily basis, and certainly that's true on Sunday mornings. I know that some come in these doors this morning just carrying heavy loads. It's feeling exhausted, worn out, spent. Lord, we pray that you would use your word this morning to refresh. Father, we know that in other cases, maybe some have wandered down a path that's not helpful for their soul. And we pray this morning that you would use your word to correct. Lord, maybe for some of us, we've lost sight of who you are and your greatness. We pray this morning, you would use your word to remind us of who you are so that we might worship. Lord, we're just asking for your help this morning because we need it, and we're praying that you would speak loudly and clearly through your word for our good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Amen. So when we lived in New York, one of our fellow church members was a lady who played a key role in designing Siri, the virtual assistant that's part of Apple's operating system, as in the virtual assistant that helps you make phone calls or sends texts or use apps just by using your voice. Siri, call pizza. Siri, text on you. Siri, use Google Maps. Needless to say then, as one of the designers of Siri, this lady was really smart. In fact, both she and her husband were so intelligent that talking to either one of them was almost like talking to a person of a different species. It's clear we were not on the same level. I was playing checkers. They were playing some other game that has not even been invented. To the point that most of the time, when I talked to them, I ended up not really knowing what we were actually talking about. Now I should be clear in saying that both of them were incredibly kind and pleasant people. They loved Jesus. They were generous towards others. They were joyful too. So even though I didn't know what we were always talking about, when I did talk with them, I always enjoyed conversations. Now, I'm sure to them it felt like they were talking to a third grader, but they never made me feel that way. And I always left the conversation thinking that was an experience. I don't know what we talked about, but that was fun. So those conversations alone made it worthwhile to have this lady and her husband as a friend. But on top of that, I have to admit, it was pretty cool to have a friend who helped design Siri. Siri. And I have no doubt that if I ever wanted to know the full extent of what Siri could do or the best way to actually utilize Siri, there would have been nothing more helpful than talking to this friend of ours. After all, she was one of the key designers. It wasn't just that she knew facts about Siri or that she'd used Siri before. No, she knew the ins and outs of the way Siri is designed to work the way it was. And no matter how much time I would have spent researching on my own, just trying to figure it out on my own phone or reading articles on the internet. Nothing could have matched the helpfulness of actually talking and asking questions to one of the designers. Now, for the record, I didn't ever have that conversation, partly because I don't like using Siri, and partly because I didn't want to sound like a complete doofus by asking really dumb questions. How do you turn this on and off? I'm sure that would have been annoying to her. Nevertheless, the point is that if I really wanted to understand Siri, and if I really wanted to understand all of its functions, there's no better source that could have been available to me than our friend. Because if you want to understand how something works, if you want to understand why it works the way it does, there is no better resource than the actual designer. Because the, the designer understands not just the what, but also the why and the how. In the same way, I would say this I'm convinced that if we want to understand who we are as humans, if we want to understand how to best utilize and maximize our potential and find the most joy, I'm convinced the best way to do that is actually learning more about our design. And maybe more accurately, learning more about our designer. As much as we might like to think that we can learn a lot about humanity through our own experience or through observation or by listening to other people, the reality is there is no better resource to understand who we are as humans or why we are here than the designer himself. To understand who we are, we need to understand the one who made us. And we need to understand the way that he made us. And I think that reality of the need to focus on our designer to understand ourselves is very apparent in our passage today. In Genesis 2, verse 4, the attention of the creation story shifts from the creation as a whole to the creation of man specifically. But interestingly enough, when the creation account shifts and the attention shifts to the creation of man, the focus is not on man. In fact, in our passage today, you'll notice that man is just a passive bystander. The focus in this passage is not on man, but it is on God. But again, I, I think that makes sense. To understand who we are, we first have to understand our design. And to understand our design, we need to understand more about our designer. So I said, Let's get to it. Genesis 2, 4-14. If you would, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Standing is just a simple way we can remind ourselves this is the Word of God, and as such, it's due our attention. You can follow along as I read with words on the screen, or you can just listen, or you can look along in your own Bibles. But Genesis 2, starting in verse 4, says this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. and The man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold, And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We'll stop there for today. You may be seated. It's the word of God. So before we turn our attention to the text itself, I think it might be necessary for us to go into the weeds a little bit here. And the reason I think it's worth going into the weeds is because there are some questions about the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In recent years, some scholars have argued that Genesis 1 and 2 contain two separate conflicting creation accounts that were written by two authors and later joined together by one editor. Conversely, the church throughout the ages has traditionally held to the idea that in Genesis 1 and 2, we have one unified account with two different emphases, which explains why the chapters read so differently. So the question is, which is it? And the reason why this question matters, and we're going to come back to this here in a little bit, is because I think it speaks to the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible. And so I think it's worth going in the weeds for just a second here. So the question is, do we have two separate conflicting accounts in Genesis 1 and 2? Or do we have one unified account with two different emphases? Now I'm just going to put my cards on the table from the very beginning here and tell you that I believe that there is one unified account in Genesis 1 and 2 with two different emphases. I think Genesis 1... Or more precisely, Genesis 1, 1 through chapter 2, 3, that's one section, is giving us the overarching helicopter view of creation days 1 through 7. I think Genesis 2, or again more precisely, Genesis 2 verses 4 to 25, is zeroing in specifically on day 6 in the creation of man. Now I think that shift in emphasis plays a huge part in understanding why we see some differences between Genesis 1 and 2. That said, to further explain why I hold to the idea that Genesis 1 and 2 are one unified account with two different emphases, it might be helpful to explain why I don't hold to the other view. Again, that other view being that Genesis 1 and 2 are written by two different authors with two different conflicting views of creation. Those who hold to that view would often put forth two arguments to try to argue why they think there are two conflicting accounts. One, they point out that from their perspective, at least, there's a change in style between Genesis 1 and 2. The author just writes differently. And two, again, from their perspective, the order of events don't seem to line up between Genesis 1 and 2. And therefore, in their mind, there's two different accounts. Now, the end, I don't think either of those arguments are persuasive. But having said that, it's worth acknowledging that there are some major differences between Genesis 1 and 2. And in fact, I think they're right in pointing out there is a bit of a change in style between Genesis 1 and 2, and there are some apparent contradictions in order between the two chapters. So given what's at stake here, again, I think it's the trustworthiness of the Bible, I think it's worth probably going into those two two questions or two arguments that are raised by those who hold to the idea that there are two separate creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. So first, let's talk about the style change. Proponents of the two separate conflicting creation accounts will often point to the fact that in Genesis 1, God is referred to by the name God. The Hebrew word is Elohim. So you'll notice in chapter 1, every time God's reference is God, It's just God, Elohim. But in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, God is referred to as Lord God. In fact, you see that beginning in verse 4. And then throughout the rest of 4 through 25, that's the name that's used almost exclusively. That name, Lord God, is the combination of the Hebrew word Yahweh plus the Hebrew word Elohim. Now, some would say this change in name is evidence that we have two different authors here with two different styles and thus two conflicting stories. But I think if you understand the change in emphasis from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, then the change in name makes perfect sense. Again, in chapter 1, we have this helicopter view of creation's days 1 through 7. For that helicopter view, the name Elohim, which conveys strength and power and God's sovereignty, makes perfect sense. God is the powerful creator. And that's what the author of Genesis is wanting to emphasize under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1. But when the focus shifts to the creation of man in Genesis 2, the addition of the personal name Yahweh also makes perfect sense. The name Yahweh was associated with God's covenant-making and covenant-keeping nature. So in referring to God as Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, in chapter 2, the author of Genesis is communicating that God is powerful, but he also has relationship with his people. So in a chapter that focuses on the creation of man and the relationship between God and man, that shift from God, Elohim, to Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim, makes perfect sense. So the change in style from Genesis 1 to 2 is not evidence that there's two conflicting stories, rather it's evidence that we have two different emphases. So I don't think the change in style should cause us to be worried, is there a conflicting account? But what about the apparent contradictions in order in Genesis 1 and 2? It does appear there are some contradictions, so what do we do with that? Again, proponents of the two separate creation accounts would say, well, this is evidence that we have two stories that just don't line up. But I think the emphasis or change in emphasis also helps to explain why there's these differences. To use an example from our text today. In Genesis 1, we're told that plants and vegetation were created on the third day, and man on the sixth day. But here in chapter 2, it appears that maybe man was created before plants. To see what I'm talking about, let's look at verses 5 to 7. Verse 5 when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. All right, so in chapter 1, it, feels, it seems like plants first, then man, but here in chapter 2, it seems like maybe the reverse. So what gives? What's going on here? Were plants created first or not? Well, again, I think the shift in emphasis between chapter 1 and 2 helps us understand this apparent contradiction. Chapter 1, the broad flyover view. Chapter 2, the zooming in. In chapter 1, we're talking about vegetation as a whole, that God created plants. But in chapter 2, it seems we're talking about a very specific type of plant, a type of plant that's related to the creation of man. Notice in verse 5, the reason why the bush of the field and the plant of the field had not grown up is because there had been no rain and, critically, no man to till the ground. Now, that language would suggest the types of plants we're talking about in chapter 2 are plants that needed to be cultivated by man. Obviously, there are a lot of plants that grow without cultivation by man, but there are some that require cultivation. It seems that's what we're talking about in chapter 2, and also maybe potentially even a specific place where these plants need to grow, the garden. As Bible scholar Michael Kruger summarizes the situation, we can be assured there's no contradiction between Genesis 2.5 and Genesis 1. Because Genesis 2.5 is speaking of entirely different types of plants. It's only these particular plants, plants designed for mankind that will spring up after man. So the apparent contradiction in order between Genesis 1 and 2 is just that. It's an apparent contradiction. So in the end, the arguments for the idea that there are two separate conflicting creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 are not persuasive. And thus, I think we can be confident what we have in Genesis 1 and 2 is one unified story with two different emphases. Now, having said all that, you might ask the question, okay, why are we spending so much time talking about this? Is it really necessary to go deep into the Bible nerd forest this morning? Do we really need to do a deep dive into the different names of God in Genesis 1 and 2? Do we really need to talk about the types of plants that we're talking about in chapter 2, verse 5? Now, believe me, I ask myself that question a lot this week. Is it worthwhile to go into the weeds? After all, most of the time you go in the weeds, what happens? You get lost. But here's why I ultimately decided a trip into the Bible nerd forest was worth it. I think one of the ways that people try to undermine the authority of the Bible is by pointing to sections of Scripture like Genesis 1 and 2. They'll say things like, look, there are two different creation accounts here in Genesis 1 and 2. They conflict each other. Therefore, you can't trust the Bible. In particular, I think our high school students that we head off to college, I think of our high school students that we headed off to college in the next few years. It's highly, highly likely that at some point those students will run into some professor in some class who will point to a section of scripture like Genesis 1 and 2 as a means of trying to discredit the authority of the Bible. And so I think it's worthwhile for us to deal with the passage like this and acknowledge there are some apparent contradictions but then address those apparent contradictions so we can understand they're not really a contradiction at all. Rather, it's just a matter of learning how to read the Bible properly. For example, in Genesis 1 and 2, there are these difficult things to resolve, but when you understand there's a change in emphasis, it completely helps us understand why chapter 1 and 2 seem to be telling two different stories. All right, that said, let's return now to the text. If you fell asleep in the Bible nerd forest, time to wake up. I'm glad you got a little bit of rest, but let's get back to it. Now, as I said in the introduction, the interesting thing about this passage is that in Genesis 2-4, the attention shifts to the creation of man. And yet, the focus in chapter 2 is not on man. It's on the creator of man. Man is just a passive bystander. God is the focus of the action. This passage is more about the designer and his design than it is the ones he designed. And in light of that, what I want to do this morning is just remind you of three facts about the designer. Three facts about the way God has made us and the way he interacts with us as humans, all right? So fact number one, God gives us life. God gives us life, again, verses five to seven. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground, and the midst was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man becomes a living creature. Now, it's true that God gives life to plants and animals, too. Elsewhere in Scripture, it even talks about how God gives breath to other creatures. But there is something intensely personal about the way our creation is described in verse 7. We're told that God formed man from the dust. The verb form is a word that might be used to describe a potter taking clay and making it something useful. The idea here is that God molds us and shapes us as humans. Now, this is not something unique to Adam, by the way. In fact, in Psalm 139, it talks about how God knits us together, us being all of us as humans, in the womb. But more than just forming us, God also breathes into us, gives us life. Man becomes a living creature only when the breath of life enters in. We were not made in a laboratory by scientists mixing chemicals together. We were not made by a computer program generating out a new life. We were not made by the result of random time and chance. We are alive because God gave us life. And that has some huge implications. If we have life, it's because God gave it to us. No one can say they created themselves. No one takes credit for their first breath. No baby comes out of the womb screaming, I did it. I made this happen. No, every breath we have is a gift from God. And I think that implies also that if God is the one who gives us life, and if everything God does is purposeful, then we are here for a reason. He has put us here because he gave us life. There's not one person in this room, not one, who is an accident or a mistake. You are here for a purpose. And that purpose is connected to the one who made you. The thing is, as we see in the rest of Scripture, it's not just that we were made by God, it's also that we were made for God. As Augustine once famously said it, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Because we are made by God and made to find joy in pursuing God and knowing more about him, we will be empty until the moment we decide that we are going to live for him. To give an example from my own life, and actually use an example I've used before, but to come out from a slightly different angle. One of the emptiest moments of my life was one of the moments of my life that I should have had the most pride and thought things are going well. Leading up to my senior year, I trained relentlessly for my final high school football season. All summer, my buddies and I would get together and lift weights and run and do drills on the field. We were in the best shapes of our life heading heading into our senior season, and it paid off. We tied a school record for most wins. We tied a school record for farthest advancement in the state playoffs. But when we finally got knocked out of the playoffs and we got our trophy for this great accomplishment, in that moment, I felt not proud or not just overwhelmed by what an achievement we had. Instead, I just felt empty. I felt empty that we'd worked this hard and all we get is this wood and metal. Now, for the record, I don't think there's anything wrong with working hard or trying to accomplish something great. The problem was I was doing it with no reference to the one who'd made me. God gave me life, but I was busy pursuing my own agenda, trying to make a name for myself and accomplish things that would make me feel good. And that trophy in that moment was emblematic of the hollowness of what I've been doing. It was just wood and metal. It wouldn't last. But here's the thing. Even now as a Christian, I can still sometimes lose my bearings and my purpose. I can forget that I'm here because God gave me life. I have a purpose, and that purpose is connected to the one who made me. So listen, if you're here this morning and you feel worthless, or you feel like you don't have value, remember, God gave you life. You're valuable. You're made in His image. If you're feeling rudderless and hopeless, remember, God has a purpose for you. If there's anything we've learned in Genesis 1 and 2, it's this, this, that God does nothing without purpose or without intention. Everything he does is purposeful and intentional. And hear this, you are no exception to that. If he gave you life, he has you here for a reason. So live for him and live for the joy that's found in him. And remember, too, that God is the one who gives life to those around you also. Your neighbor who drives you crazy, made by God. Your uncle who's a little bit wacky, made by God. The person across town who opposes everything you believe in, made by God. Don't lose sight of the fact that they too are image bearers. So that's one fact that we learn from this passage, that God gives us life. Fact number two, God gives us real bodies and puts us in real places. Verses 8 through 14, we read this, "...and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden." In the east, and there he put the man whom he'd formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that followed around the whole land of Favila, where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good, Bedelium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It's the one, excuse me, that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, one of the striking things about that section of scripture I just read is the specifics we get regarding geographic location. To this point in the account, we don't even know the the name of the man who was created, Adam. But we know that he was given life by God, and we know that he was given a body and put in a very specific place, a place called Eden, with a river that flowed out of it and divided into four rivers, the Pishon, the Gion, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Now, the Tigris and Euphrates are still around today, but we have no idea where the Pishon or Gion are. For that matter, we don't know much about the lands of Havila or Cush either. But I don't think that's the point. The point here is not to give us clues as to where this was. The point is, God gave man real bodies and put us in real places. In other words, what I'm saying is we are physical people. Here at Fremont Free we talk a lot about the importance of our spiritual health, and for good reason. Our spiritual health has value for all seasons. But don't ignore the fact that while we are spiritual beings, we are also physical beings. The two are not disconnected. Part of being made alive on this earth means that we are real people living with real bodies in real places. And that, ma- and that matters. It matters because it means that we are embodied creatures. We have bodies. And it matters because he's put us in place. He's given us a location to live. If God would have wanted to, he could have made us spiritual beings that are just floating in some spiritual dimension. But he didn't. He gives us real bodies and puts us in real places. It's not an accident that you have life, but it's also not an accident that you have a body and you live in a specific place. In fact, if you think about it, it's kind of staggering to think about how do we end up where we do? For example, in my own life, when I came out of high school, I debated between going to school at the University of Northern Iowa or Truman State University. For reasons that retrospectively don't make a lot of sense, I chose the University of Northern Iowa. And at the University of Northern Iowa, I came to know Jesus and I met my wife. Now, if I didn't go there, and I almost didn't, what would my life look like right now? I mean, it's impossible to answer that question, isn't it? But it would look radically different. And from that point forward, there have been a whole bunch of other forks in the road that we chose, and by God's grace, we just end up here in Fremont, Nebraska. And I'm not even peeling back the layers of, what if my parents would have never met, or what if my grandparents never would have met? Right? There's all these things that lead to this place where we live in a specific place at a specific time. And What I'm telling you is, it's not an accident language of Genesis 2 helps us to see that God put Adam where he was intentionally, in the Garden of Eden. I think given what we read in the rest of the scripture about how God knows all of our days, we can say with great confidence, he has a specific place for you too. From eternity past, God knew you would be in this room right now. And the point is, that too is part of his design. Bodies and locations weren't something added after the fall, no, they were part of God's design from the beginning. So a couple of follow-up questions related to those two realities. If God designed us to live as embodied creatures, what does that imply about the way we should treat and use our bodies? Secondly, if God designed us to live in real places, what does that imply about the way we should think about our current living location? When we think about the creation account, we tend to focus on the fact we're made in God's image, and for good reason. That's one of the most important things about us. But don't dismiss the fact that we are also made to be real people living with real bodies in real places. I think that's the point of what's going on in verses 8 to 14. Over the years, some have read the geographic details of verses 8 to 14 as if God is giving us a hidden treasure map to try to figure out where was Eden. But to read verses 8 to 14 in that way, as if we're Indiana Jones, looking for some lost treasure, is to completely miss the point of the passage. God is not trying to give us a treasure map to find Eden as if the pre-fall Eden still exists. No, what he's doing is helping us to see that he gave man real bodies and put them in real places. So that's the second thing we learn about God's design in in chapter 2 here, that God gives us real bodies and puts us in real places. Fact number three, God generously and lavishly provides for his people. Now, one of the things that's interesting about the language of verse 8 to 14 is how generous God is in doing what he does with Adam. In fact, the first paragraph we see is generosity everywhere. Verse 8, the Lord plants a garden in Eden. He puts the man whom he formed there. Verse 9, The Lord God made trees to spring up that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. In the midst of that garden is the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now those trees will become a big part of the storyline going forward. And we won't go all the way down that road today. But suffice to say for now, the fact that the tree of life was there and that Adam and Eve had access to it before the fall tells us something of God's generosity and his provision, his kindness, God's provision continues in the next paragraph, in verses 10 through 14. Verse 10, a river flows out of Eden to water the garden, becomes four rivers. Verse 11, there's gold. Verse 12, the gold of that land is good. There's also bdellium and onyx stone. Verse 13 and 14, again, emphasize that the rivers water the land. So the overall picture then of verses 8 to 14 is one of life, extravagant beauty, lush vegetation, plentiful resources, and food that is good. It's not too much of a stretch to say this is indeed paradise. Now, sadly, as you know, if you've read ahead, that paradise would be shattered. And since then, we've been looking for it, but we can't find it here, can we? Not too long after Tony and I got married, my parents took us to Hawaii as part of their 30th wedding anniversary celebration. Now, of course, we were excited to go to Hawaii because it's paradise on earth, right? Well, it ended up being one of the worst weeks of my life. The first day that we were there, we body boarded, body, body boarded for a couple of hours in the middle of the day. Rookie mistake. I got the worst sunburn of my entire life. I'm talking a sunburn so serious that I had to adjust the size of my hat because my head was swelling up. And the rest of the week, I felt miserable. I mean, miserable. I couldn't do anything, including sleeping, without being excruciating pain. On the way home, I remember I could rub my head, and flakes of skin would fly everywhere. I was like a walking snow globe. I remember doing this particularly at the airport, and I remember doing it at the airport because we got stuck at the airport. Our plane got canceled. We had to stay overnight and sleep in some airport, I don't even know where, on the airport floor. It was supposed to be this dream vacation, and in the end, it was a nightmare. Paradise was not what it was cracked up to be. But hear this, the Garden of Eden before the fall was not like that. Where it's a promise of paradise, but not as good as you think. No, it was paradise. Everything about the garden was good and right and beautiful. And that tells us something about, it tells us something very important, actually, about the world before sin. But it also tells us something important about the designer. He longs to bless and to provide and lavish us with goodness. And what you need to know this morning, and what you need to remember this morning is, that is still his disposition toward us. I don't want to get too far ahead in the story. I don't want to spoil it for you, but sin is going to come along and it's going to ruin everything. Maybe more to the point, we've ruined everything. Instead of living for the one who gave us life, we live for self. Instead of following his design, we go our own way. And the result is catastrophic. God's first instinct, and we saw this back earlier in Genesis, towards humans is to bless. He lavishly provides, He's bountifully generous. But sin has ruined that. It's made a mess of everything. But know this, God's character is still the same. He still longs to bless and to lavish and to give generously. Now because he's just and holy, he does have to punish sin. But he still longs to bless us. And we know this. We know this is true of his character because he sent Jesus to die for our sins. He generously and sacrificially and joyfully, Jesus did lay down his life so that we could be set free. Ephesians 1 tells us, in Christ, We've been lavished with the riches of grace. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. In Christ, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. In other words, his instinct is still to bless and to lavish us generously. He does it by sending his son. So listen, I know that some of you are going through hard stuff right now. and Maybe you feel discouraged and beat down and weary. That is part of life in a broken world. But be reminded from Genesis 2, be reminded from the cross God loves to give good gifts to his children. If you are in Christ, you can be confident he's not forgotten about you. His instinct is still to bless and lavish. We see this at the cross. We also see in the garden. The garden is evidence of God's kindness and goodness. It's evidence that his instinct is one of gentleness and lowliness. He is generous and he provides. Before sin ruined everything, everything was very good. Now in saying that, I have to say this. There's part of me... There's part of me that was just really sad reading this passage this week. Because honestly, I'm just tired of living in a broken world. I'm tired of sickness. I'm tired of quarrels. I'm tired of war. I'm tired of death. I'm tired of my own sin. I'm tired of division. I'm tired of relational conflict. Earlier this week, Tony and I were talking, and we were just kind of reflecting on the last six months or so. We just realized this last six months has taken a toll on us relationally. It's taken a toll on us spiritually at times. It's taken a toll on us emotionally emotionally. It's certainly taken a toll on Tanya physically. And as I was thinking about that conversation with Tanya and thinking about this passage, I couldn't help but think, I wish I could go back to Genesis 2 before the fall. I wish I could be in the garden in its perfect state. But actually, I think that's part of the point. Because all the stuff that we see here in Genesis 2, the lush vegetation, the precious jewels, the bounding river, the tree of life, not coincidentally... All of that will appear again in the book of Revelation. When Christ returns and the new heavens and the new earth are consummated here on earth, it's then the paradise will be restored. But get this, it'll be even better. Because on that side of Jesus' death on the cross, we will also worship him for his grace and mercy. And we will see what Jesus did and we will be filled with even more worship. On top of that, we will not even be capable of sinning anymore. So listen, I don't know about you, but I long for that day. I long for that day where we can walk with God in the garden again, and we can know peace, and we can know freedom from sin and death and sorrow. I long for that day, and the good news is this. If you are in Christ, that day is coming. When Christ returns, we will once again walk with God in the garden. There will be no more sorrow or death or tears. But the only way you can guarantee entry into that paradise is through the blood of Jesus Christ. So hear this, if you have never repented of your sin and trusted Christ, by repent, we mean turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And my encouragement to you today is trust in Christ, repent from your sin so that you can have everlasting life, so you can have the joy of being with God in perfect harmony. And if you are a Christian, I would hope that you would read this description in Genesis 2, compare it to the description in Revelation and think, I can't wait for that day. And I am so glad that Jesus died and rose from the dead so that I could have access once again to be with God forever. Oh, I would hope that you would read this, think about Revelation, think about what Jesus did, and your response today would be to leave here worshiping. I know of no other response that would be appropriate other than that. We have a great God who is lavish in his providing for us, and we see it most notably in Jesus Christ. So let's pray. God, we thank you for Genesis 2. We thank you for the reminder that you give us life. We thank you for the reminder that you give us a specific place to live. But we thank you mostly that you are just a generous God. And we see that mostly in Jesus' dying on the cross. And we long for the day where we can return to the pre-fall state. In fact, we can advance beyond that because we'll be living on the other side of the cross where Jesus has done the work for us. So, Lord, we thank you for the reminder here in Genesis 2 We pray that we long for that day, and we pray that we would worship you for what you've done for us so that we could have access once again to be with you forever. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. So in light of how we just finished, it seems entirely appropriate that we would now take our time and go to the Lord's table together. Because in going to the Lord's table, we are reminded that it was Jesus' body broken and his blood shed that gives us access to be with God in paradise forever. In fact, the invitation of the Lord's table is that if you would come to him, his blood can cleanse you and his broken body can rescue you. So if you're not a Christian you're here today, we would encourage you, please do not partake in the Lord's Supper. However, know that the gospel is freely offered to you. Repent today. Turn to Christ for your salvation. If you are a Christian, then what we're doing is we're celebrating what Jesus has done. And so practically what happens here at Freeze, we have five different stations located around the sanctuary, two in the back. And three up front, all of them are exactly the same. This one does have a gluten-free option. That's the only difference. Otherwise, they're all the same. You can go to any of those stations, grab the elements, take them back to your seat, and then we'll take them together here at the end. In the meantime, Anna's going to sing some music and give us some time here to reflect on what God has done. And so when you're ready, you can come to the table. Then again, we'll take it together here in a little bit. So let me pray, and then we can do that. God, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your table and to be reminded of what Jesus has done. Help us to... Help us to do so with worshipful hearts, not just going through the religious motions here, but remembering who you are and what you've done for us. It's in Christ, name we pray, amen. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, For I received from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together.